0: Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media.
1: I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be covering Hobbs Hog by Alan Moore. This was published in 1996. We're doing two episodes, and this is our first of two, which is the recap. Right, this is a long
0: story. We're treating it as a novella, you know the drill. One episode of recap, one episode of discussion. This is really the the first chapter of Alan Moore's novel, Voice of the Fire, but it is a self contained story. In fact, every chapter in that novel is a self contained story. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But uh, we also should make clear that we read this in the 2003 edition. The 1996, the original 1996 run was an extremely limited run. So we read the 2003 edition, which has an introduction by. Neil Gaiman. It's also got some art that I don't think we're going to talk about, at least not uh, not for this story. Uh, we should also say that this was nominated by a Patreon supporter.
1: Yeah, we're so grateful for all the support we get on uh, Patreon. Uh, other things that won the vote for Patreon is the next King in Yellow story by Robert W. Chambers. This will be this is the third story in the collection. Uh, really excited to get to that. We also finally have Mr. James. We're finally getting to do another Mr. James <laughs> story. Uh, this is a story called The Rose Garden. Uh, we'll be covering an Arthur Machin novella. And then I'm really excited about this. The uh, first occult detective story by Seabury Quinn. This is called The Horror on the Links. I am very excited. I love occult detective stories. Uh, can't wait to go back to the origins of the genre with this one. Yeah,
0: I'm really excited about this one too. I mean, you know, we can tell from the title it's going to have something to do with a golf course, which is not, I don't (laughs) think, generally, you know, in our real world view of golf, but uh, uh, that should be fun. And Seabury Quinn was a, a big contributor to Weird Tales. And we've not really been doing a whole lot of the Weird Tales variety of weird fiction on Elder Side because, well, I mean, really because Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and even Robert E. Howard are not really winning votes all that much, actually, uh, but also because we're only nominating them. So it'll be nice to get Seabury Quinn into our rotation as well. And we're, we're we're looking to get some other Weird Tales writers into the rotation as well. And in fact, uh, one of them actually was on this ballot. That's, that's Robert Block, although most of his career, you know, was uh, much later than Weird Tales was still in print. But uh, Robert Block's String of Pearls was also on this ballot. You mentioned this last time, Brandon, and uh, that also won. But we went ahead and just put that up on Patreon. that's already there as you're hearing this. So you can go check that out if you are a Patreon supporter. And uh, actually, you can do that if you're not a Patreon supporter, too. You just have to become one. We should talk about what did not win on this ballot. And in fact, Clark Ashton Smith did not make it <laughs> past the post on this on this ballot. Uh, also, Jeff Vandermeer didn't make it. And that that surprised me. Uh, I thought for sure that Jeff Vandermeer would win handily. He's someone I think of as having uh, a pretty significant cult following, uh, but just didn't just didn't happen. But you know, there's a lot of good stuff on these ballots. It's a you know, it's it's a good problem to to have when Jeff Vandermeer isn't quite making it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, we'll we'll definitely get to Jeff Vandermeer at some point. He's way too important in uh, the development of weird fiction and weird stories to not. Be covered on the show at some point. But I, I really like the ballot system because it always surprises me. And we always do stuff that I end up really being glad we've done, even if we're not getting to kind of the contemporary masters of, of the weird. Uh, like I said, I mean, I couldn't be more pleased with what we'll be covering coming up. So uh, I'm sure Jeff Vandermeer will stay on the ballot. And if he wins, he wins. <laughs> and then we'll cover it. <laughs>
0: Right. And I, I have done some Jeff Vandermeer uh, for ATOS. I mean, that won't actually be out on the air for like two more years, but I have recorded an episode about his novel Finch, which I, I loved tremendously. That was my second time reading that. We'll say one more thing before we actually get into into this story, which is, hey, this is an Alan Moore story. And I just remind people, really people who are not yet Patreon supporters, that one of the goals that we've got coming up is for Brent and I to cover Alan Moore's uh, first uh, story arc on Swamp Thing, which was... Was uh, groundbreaking both uh, in the development of uh, the contemporary comics landscape, and also pretty groundbreaking, pretty significant in the development of weird fiction. I'm not sure that we would have Jeff Vandermeer books without the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run, for example. And that is uh, that's a goal that we've got coming up. So if you're not already a Patreon supporter, but you do like Alan Moore and you would be interested in hearing the network do more about Alan Moore, uh, that's the way to to get us to do that. So uh, let's turn our attention here to, to Hobbs Hog. Now, Brandon, I mean, as we said, that just totally ran away with the vote. It didn't just win. It totally ran away with it. But before we launch into the recap, I think we do need some background about this book, about uh, Voice of the Fire is the, the name of the novel. So Voice of the Fire is a saga. That's the type of novel that it is. It, it tells a story over the course of a long time. In this case, it's literally thousands of years, with each chapter taking place at a different time. And this chapter, the first chapter, Hobbes Hogg, is 4000 BC. But uh, just randomly, for example, here looking at the table of contents, chapter seven is set in 1607. Uh, and then the last chapter is uh, it's 1995. So basically set when Alan Moore was writing it. And each of these chapters is a self-contained story. And in fact, the introduction to the, the volume that we have or the edition that we have in that introduction, Neil Gaiman tells us that we don't have to start at the beginning if we don't want to. But we wanted to. So we did. Uh, the other thing to say too, is that all of these stories all they all take place in Northampton, in the the East Midlands of England, which is where Alan Moore is from, and I, I think where he lives. Uh, so what this book is doing, and what we are going to do if we continue to go through it is to chart the history of that town over about six, thousand years through these largely self-contained stories. And this was an extraordinarily popular type of novel, uh, really in the 1980s. I think in particular, uh, James Michener wrote like a zillion of these things. They're all a thousand pages long. I don't know; one of them might be like eight thousand pages long. <laughs> my parents had a ton of these books. Brandon, I don't know if you have any familiarity with them, but my parents had several of these. I read them as a kid. They had uh, his book Space, which actually is not one of these types at all. But they also had Texas and Poland and uh, The Covenant, which are these saga type novels that were super long, but. I I think actually the most important of these that was a big uh, a big hit uh, at least the most important for Alan Moore I mean is the novel Serum by Edward Rutherford. This was published in 1987, and it tells a series of stories about people in Salisbury from prehistory up until the present. And uh, the Salisbury Plain—that's where Stonehenge is. So there is a lot of attention to the prehistoric part, which is relevant for today. Uh, this is actually a book that Brant and I read as teenagers. We read this just because his dad had it, and you know the cover had Stonehenge on it. So you know why would we why would we not read it? So so that's the novel. Uh, we can take our time reading through it on the show, and I, I suspect we will want to get to the second installment eventually. But uh, we should uh, we should get into the recap, and we should also say the recap is not going to be easy to do this time. So, uh, are you ready for this, Brandon?
1: I am. You're right. this This is a tough story to recap, uh, and, and it's because this story is told from the first person perspective of the protagonist who has very low intelligence. And that's reflected in his language and his narration. He has real significant difficulties understanding the world around him. And there's an unusual amount of decoding uh, required to understand this story. Uh, I'm going to make assumptions then about what the protagonist means when he's talking about stuff throughout the recap. Uh, So if you've read this story and you're uh, interpretation, your decoding skills are more advanced than mine. Please let us know on the forums uh, where I've where I've strayed. But in order to make this as streamlined as possible, I, I'm just going to make assumptions here. Right. I, I think a big part
0: of the discussion, I mean, not the discussion episode, but the conversation that we can have with listeners about this is simply how you and I have translated this story into our actual language versus how other readers will have done that. And, and I think we should probably give an example of what we're talking about here. So I'm going to actually just read the first two paragraphs of the story. And uh, listener, I assure you, I am fine. <laughs> A hind of hill weighs off to sunset down is sky come like as fire and walk I up in way of this, all heart of breath, where is grass colding on ice feet and wedding day? There is not grass on high of hill. There is but dirt, all and around, that hill is as like to a no-hair man. He's head. Stands I and turns I's face to wind for sniff, and yet is no sniff come for far ways off. Eye's belly hurts in middle of eye. Belly air come up in mouth, and like of it is like to lick of no thing. Dry up blood lump is come black on knee, and is with itch. Scratch eye, where is yet more blood come. So... Obviously, that's uh, it's quite difficult to perform that because the, the grammar and the syntax are alien, maybe is one word for it, crazy, might be another. And there are some particular features of this language that we'll, we'll dig into in the discussion, but we will also in the discussion be talking about why the language is like this. And uh, Brandon, you've said that you think it's because the narrator is of uh, very low intelligence, and that might be true. I, I've actually gone back and forth on that. I'm not sure where I've landed right now, and I'm sure I'll change my mind before the end of this episode again anyway. But even still, that might not be the reason the language is like this. And in the discussion episode, we're going to bring in Alan Moore himself to shed some light on why he has written this story this way, what he thinks he's doing. But uh, yeah, we've got 60 pages of this difficult (laughs) narration to
1: get through. So let's do it. You're right. I mean, there are these uh, weird poetry interludes that are in some way crucial to the plot. And those indicate that the that the language might just be like this. Um, but I think even in those bits of of poetry, uh, these songs that are in the story, uh, they're still a little more clear than than the narrative's own thought process. So, yeah, we'll definitely be talking about that. I'm gonna reinterpret then this paragraph that these two paragraphs that you've read, Glenn., uh, here's what I think happened. So the story opens with the protagonist climbing a hill his knee is wounded and he's hungry. When he burps, he doesn't have an aftertaste of the last meal that he ate, which is ideal, I think, for most burping. <laughs> but in this case, uh, it really indicates that he's hungry because he, he, he can't taste, I don't know, with acid reflux or whatever, the last raw animal he's eaten, uh, really, or berries or something. It's cold, uh, and he's not wearing many, if any, clothes. I I don't know if he's naked or not, uh, but clothes are certainly strange to him, as we'll find out later. Glenn, you pointed out it's 4000 BC. Uh, Clouds are in the sky. The narrator calls these clouds sky beasts, Uh, and this indicates that that a storm is on the way, I think. From the top of the hill, when the narrator reaches the top of this hill without any grass on it, he sees some pigs and they're doing pig stuff like mating. And the narrator is excited by this, I should say aroused I suppose. And he also thinks he can hunt the pigs to eat one. So he goes down the hill running after the pigs and he slips and falls. And at this point something really strange happens. The the narrator indicates that he's worried that the pigs will change into something in edible. And the narrator has this whole thing about things changing into other things. And I think we're meant to understand that, at least in my understanding, the narrator has a real messed up sense of object permanence. And if he looks away and an animal or something escapes or like scurries away and then he looks back and something is where the animal was, like a rock or a, or a log or something has taken its place then he interprets that experience as the initial object having transformed. Uh, he also might have really poor vision, like he can't see uh, far away. And, and so he says like in an in, in explanation of this, a, a more clear explanation than my own, that once the narrator saw a rat turn into pebbles. And this sort of transformation, this thing's changing is a, is a big part of this story. But in the case of the pigs, though, by the time the narrator catches up to them, he thinks they've turned into logs of white wood. And this is where I think he has vision problems as well. I mean, we're not going to assume that from a far way off, he's seen these pigs and they've turned like magic into logs. It's just he can't interpret the world around him. Uh, He also might be hallucinating. Who knows what he's eating? Then he cries when he realizes that the pigs have gotten away. Then he has to pee. So he pees and it's so cold outside that his stream of urine creates a, a little cloud of steam against the log. I'm going to point this out once and, and we're not going to talk about it too much, I don't think. But I, I have to point out that the narrator is super interested in what his penis is up to. He calls it his Will. And there are a lot of bones and in the narrator's will throughout the story. And this kind of ends up being really important to the plot in the end. I probably wouldn't bring it up if it weren't crucial to the plot of the story. <laughs> uh, and maybe we'll bring it up in the discussion. I, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, so all of this is some of the evidence for the narrator being of low intelligence or, or maybe Having some kind of neurodevelopmental disorder. Uh, some of this, and I, I think you know, in particular that the penis obsession might suggest that he's a child around four years old. But we do learn in this same section that he gets erections. So he has to be pubescent at the the, the youngest, right? But uh, as far as the, the pigs go here, Brandon, I do think in this case he's just mistaken some logs for pigs. And I, I don't know that that's evidence of a vision problem. I think it's really just that he's seeing from. That far away, and uh there's something with the, the the light. You know, this might not be the best light to see by. And he just, you know, he's got food on his mind. He's looking for something to to eat, and he would like to eat some pigs. And so, mistakes these logs for pigs. And then when he gets there and sees that they're just logs, he can't comprehend that he simply misunderstood. That he simply misinterpreted what his eyes were 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 showing him, and thinks that that they had to have been pigs once and now are, have transformed into logs that's my sense of it but wow this is this is all tough in the first just few pages of this of this book of this story because we've got sort of two things going on here we have a narrator who doesn't have a good, relationship with reality. And also we have this crazy language that Alan Moore has made up that he's telling us this story and throwing those two things at us in the first two pages, like at the same time, that was a bold move.
1: Yeah, it it really is. I mean, my sense is that the narrator, by the time we get to the end of the story is like maybe between the ages of like 11 and 14. Uh, that's, That's my guess. I think part of the reason... Uh, why the narrator can't understand that he could be mistaken is also crucial to the plot. I mean, there's a lot of excellent craft in this story. Uh, the, the narrator has no concept of deception or of reality not being upfront with him uh, and being easily understandable. So he has his own understanding of reality, and he really can't understand any other mode of understanding it. And And that's another ma- bit of evidence maybe for, for low intelligence here. Um, but the, the crucial thing to the narrative is that deception is something that is very, very foreign to him. All right. So, if, if it hasn't been clear at this point, the narrator is all alone. He's by himself and he knows it, which is not typical for people in 4500 BC or 4000 BC. And we learn that he's been rejected by his people. And this is because he can't really forage well. So, his people are foragers. They seem to think that he contributes nothing to the larger well being of the group. And while his mother was alive, uh, he was allowed in the group because his mother could protect him from kind of the group attitudes toward him. He's been rejected. He's been kicked out of the group because his mother's not alive now. And this is why he's on his own. And now the narrator's mind is shifting to thinking about his mother. For the narrator, dreaming and thinking are kind of interrelated. He uses the same word, I think, for both. He remembers being little and drinking milk from his mother's breast. This is another indicator that he's maybe very young. He remembers the day his mother died and he came across her and she wasn't moving and it was time to get up. She's cold and covered in bugs and he tries to wake her up, but her head is in a puddle. And this to me indicates that she may have been drowned. Next, the narrator tries to warm his mother up by having sex with her, but rigor mortis is set in, and he can't open her legs. And he's in the process of trying to move her body so he can warm her up. And one of the people of the narrator's group, a man, comes up to both of them and throws the narrator off his mother and then hits him, <laughs> rightly so. And then the group's spiritual leader comes along and confirms that the mother is dead. And now a small group has gathered, and one of the women in the group accuses the narrator of murdering his mother. The group agrees that that is probably what happened, though I think it's clear that someone else probably murdered her so they could kick this kid out of the group. Uh, And they make the narrator dig his mother's grave. First, he tries to run away But they catch up with him and tell him he has to dig her grave so that scavengers don't come for the corpse. And it takes him a very long time to dig the hole. And everyone is getting frustrated and impatient. Once he digs enough, enough in the people's view, the people make him bury his mother uh, by putting her in the grave, obviously. And then it turns out that the hole he dug wasn't big enough and her leg is sticking out. Once... The group is like, okay, you've done this. They just move on and tell him that he can't follow.
0: Yeah, incestuous necrophilia. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a good band name. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I
1: don't even think it's a good uh, band name. This is just. No, I don't think what it you is, get think. with Alan Moore. I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was pretty disturbed by this, and and I thought that I had misunderstood what was going on, given the the weird language here, right? And well, I mean you know i say thought but i really mean i i hoped that i had misunderstood what was going on but nope this is definitely what's happening and as for the the murder business or the 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 question about her cause of death i don't actually think this is actually a place I think where you and I have have interpreted the the crazy language the weird language differently so we'll we'll look to listeners on the to come to the forum here I understood that what they were claiming had happened is that not that she had been murdered that she, she had died of perfectly natural causes but she'd been worked to death because the the narrator her son is not uh contributing to the group he doesn't find his own food uh, let alone uh, contribute uh, extra food to the group as a whole and so his his mother as having to do double the amount of, of foraging. That was how I understood it. But, you know, it may be that they they actually do uh, think that he murdered her in some you know direct way that we would use that word, or maybe somebody else did, uh, you know, the, the, the actual cause of death here turns out not to really matter because this is not, in fact, a Stone Age detective story. <laughs> but that was uh, they're just pointing out a place where you and I have interpreted the language a little bit differently. I think that that's, uh, you know, helpful in sort of showing what a difficult task this is
1: yeah I think that's a fine interpretation too uh for me it was the kind of the accusation that she had been killed and not just died that that and her head being in a puddle that led me to think maybe she had been drowned in some way but uh I think your interpretation would also stand up to the the scrutiny of the text The narrator is staying with his mother's grave. And he really thinks of his mother now as her foot. This is an example of uh, metonymy, the literary device, but it's also also another clear indicator that object permanence is a real issue for this character. He kind of thinks that his mother has become the foot, like what's above ground. But then he gets hungry and realizes that oh man, I need to take care of myself. No one's going to do that for me anymore. So he tells the foot to hang tight while he goes in search of food. Then he finds some berries to eat and it starts to rain. So he hangs out in a small cave. I think it's called like a briar cave. So I'm not quite exactly sure what this is. But in any way, he's sheltered from the rain. The berries he eats put him in a weird state of mind and he sees his mother, but she doesn't have a leg. And she asks him where her leg is, and this turns out to be a dream. Then the narrator wakes up in this shelter. The rain has stopped, and he has gotten himself lost. He doesn't know where his mother's foot is anymore. So now he's like completely on his own. So he wanders around and he eats a rotten bird, uh, which makes him sick, and it gives him diarrhea. Yeah, you say
0: this uh this turns out to be a dream. That was the phrase you used. But given the the crazy language here, that was not clear to me at first. Night had to read this a, a few times to make sure that this was not a, a zombie story. And it's not a zombie story, but I really that that's what I thought might be going on
1: for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the language is very difficult. The narrator can only use like he uses the word glean for pretty much any type of mental activity, anything that's happening in his mind. So it's another example of of uh, a situation in the text where decoding is very difficult. While well, the narrator's wandering, he eventually comes to a settlement and he can smell their food. He walks up to the settlement and he looks and smells awful. Obviously, he's been wandering around, he's covered in diarrhea. He tries to explain his situation to this group and he tells them he wants some food, but the men in the settlement threaten the narrator and chase him off by throwing stones at him. And one of the stones hits his leg really hard and breaks the skin. So now we know how his leg got wounded and he's still hungry and now his leg is wounded and he's eating a rotten bird and the poop that's on his leg is probably going to infect his wound. So... Now we're back to actually just where this story opened. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All of this has just been the
0: backstory, right? We've had an evocative opening image. Now we've gotten the backstory and now the narrative is really going to start. So this is a good place to pause and talk a little bit about this world. Uh, We're going to do a lot more of that in the discussion episode, but we do need some of that now in order to understand what Alan Moore is up to. So... This is the late Stone Age, and more here is envisioning Southern England in the first years of the transition from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies. And here we have those two types of societies coexisting. The narrator's people are hunter-gatherers. Uh, they're mobile. They, they move around with their food sources. But there are small settlements scattered around, and we will eventually learn that these have been growing in number and that that growth has been creating some Competition for resources between the settled populations and the hunter-gatherers, and that they are all a little suspicious of each other. Uh, we'll talk more in the discussion about how Moore's idea here in the 1990s uh, stacks up with what scholars now think this world would have been like. But uh, at least now we have enough to to go on to to make sense of the the next scenes that
1: we're going to get in the narrative. Once again, the narrator has been gleaning this. Uh, situation. The the backstory is his memories. It might be a reverie. It might be that he's dreamed it all in a very literal sense. Uh, And he wakes up from this daze, whatever he's in is maybe brain horsepower can handle only one uh, activity at a time. And he sees this creature called a uh, shagful We've met a creature like this in, in Neil Gaiman's story, for instance, the barghest. A, a shagful, as far as I can understand, is also this this barghest creature. Uh, this creature has eyes like fire and is as big as a tree stump presence of this black dog, it's a giant black dog, I guess. So though, Glenn, you might have a different sense of what this is, terrifies the narrator. He pees himself and is frozen in place. Uh, this character has very poor uh, kind of bodily control over his uh, bowels <laughs> and his bladder. The narrator closes his eyes and eventually the shagful goes away. Then he leaves the area that he's in. And when he turns around... Uh, remember he's been by these, what he thought were pigs. The logs have turned back into pigs and they're in the exact same position he found them in, in this like mating stance. And he realizes at this point that if he goes back, they'll probably just turn back into logs and he won't get any food from the pigs, which, you know, spoiler, they were logs that the whole time, <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? And the the shagful business here, which I, I agree with you, Brandon, that this is a, a a giant black dog. It's the spectral black dog of English folklore. Uh, this is something that he's dreaming uh, again as well, but he just he can't tell the difference between uh, dreaming and the waking world. He doesn't know that dreams aren't real, which is in itself interesting. And yeah, I'm glad you pointed out, right, that we've encountered. Uh, shagfuls before, or Black Dogs bar guests before, because we we did the Neil Gaiman story Black Dog. We did that over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. That was a long time ago, and we we have also rebroadcasted on Hanging Out with the Dream King since that's our actual Neil Gaiman podcast that we started after we had uh, uh, done that Neil Gaiman story, which which you know in some ways is dealing with a, a similar world to the one that Alan Moore is envisioning here. And I, I don't remember when that story was published. Well, it has to have been after this because it was uh you know it's a it's an American God story in American Gods is from uh, 2000 or so. So I don't know, potentially this, this scene here was the, uh, the impetus for every game and thinking about that. But uh, in any case, it was cool to see that here. Uh, this is important to English folklore, right? As we talked about when we did that story, when we did that game and story. So we will be taking this up in the discussion. But yeah, I think the thing that we really need to point out here is just that the narrator seems to have trouble with dreams. He doesn't know they're not real. He's always surprised when he wakes up. He's suddenly surprised Prized right to to find himself somewhere else than he was in his dream. We're gonna get this over and over again here in the story.
1: Right. Well, now that he's awake, he can move about in the in the real world. And the narrator ends up at a place where he's overlooking a valley. I guess you'd call that a mountain or something or a hill. Uh, and he can make out I think I guess a shepherd of sorts who has a a pen to keep in pigs and oroxes. And there are actually a bunch of people and they're working together to build settlements. I mean, we learned that trees have been cut down, and and so people are settling in this valley. And he has learned from his people, narrator's people, that these folks making settlements and working together are really dumb, and they mate with animals and stuff. So he wants to avoid them because of that. And this is just classic prejudicial thinking, uh, stereotypical prejudicial thinking, I guess I should say, at play here. But he also wants to avoid them because he's just been violently ejected uh, from a group of these settlers and his leg still hurts and he really doesn't want any more hurt. So he climbs down the valley and goes through the woods towards a river and he hides to see if he can watch the way the men cross the river so he can continue along on his journey of finding food. It's really a simple quest that he's on. He moves through some marshland and his legs get sucked into the the ground as he tries to walk. And he doesn't want to lose his leg because if his leg gets too far in, it'll disappear because, you know, object permanence. Uh, So he (laughs) runs back to where the ground is firmer. And now, obviously, his leg is definitely infected and he can't walk on it. So he just falls down and bugs are beginning to feed off of his scab. As he's laying down, he probably has a fever. He sees a woman on the rise of a hill, all in white. He closes his eyes so that she won't see him. And when he opens them again, she's gone and she's turned into a large white hut. The hut is made from the the skin of an aurochs and it's white, as I've pointed out many times. And it's completely understandable how the narrator mistook it for a woman, I guess. And basically (laughs) at this point, he just passes out. When he wakes up, he hears voices from a big person and a little person, which really just means an old person and a young person. It's day and the narrator can smell flowers. He can still see the hut. And this time a girl does come out of it. He tries to see if he can smell her genitals from this distance and he can't, which, okay, but he can smell flowers The girl walks away, and a big man comes out of the hut. He's an old man, and he's wearing like black paint on his face. He's wearing a crown of antlers as well. And then he goes back in the hut and comes out. The man in the hut starts a fire. The narrator can smell the smoke, and soon he can smell flowers again. The girl has brought back flowers from wherever she went to, and the man and the girl are doing something, like rubbing flower paste on the girl.
0: Yeah. So up until now, up until this point, it's been a little hard to pin down exactly what type of weird fiction story we're in. Uh, when we had the dream about the mother, I thought maybe we were in for zombies, but nope, that's not it. Uh, then we suddenly had the Hound of the Baskervilles, but hey, that was just a dream too. But now we've got creepy pagan religious garb and, and maybe some ritual activity Going on here with a uh, fire and some flowers, uh, and we're going to learn that this antlered man is a priest. We're also going to learn that his name is Hob, and hey, uh, that's the name of the story, or the name of the story is Hob's Hog. So uh, maybe there's going to be an oracular pig in this story, or uh, maybe Hog is just metaphorical. Uh, we're gonna
1: we're gonna find out. <laughs> we certainly will. Well, the, the narrator <laughs> falls asleep. Uh, his leg is on fire. It's so badly infected. It's cold outside. It's dark. His his leg hurts. You know, these are all the things that are on his mind. And then he wakes up and he can smell the flowers again. The girl has found him and she's staring over him and standing over him. She gives him milk to drink and he tries to explain his situation. She asks about his leg and makes him a kind of poultice and a tree bark cast for his leg in order to heal it. She gives him some dried meat to eat as well. What the narrator wants to know, though, is why this girl smells like flowers. And essentially, she tells him that her and the old man make perfume. The man wants her to smell like flowers so that he can always tell where she is if she wanders beyond his line of sight. The narrator tells her that he saw Hob last night put the perfume on her. And he asks why she's taking care of him. And she tells him that Hob is old and he doesn't talk a lot and she's alone a lot of the time. So she'll trade caring for him, the narrator, for the stories he can tell her about the broader world so that she can have something to think about or to glean when she's all alone. And here's where we learn that Hob is like an elder or a spiritual leader. For the settled people, maybe a wise man or something like that, for a lot of the people who have built these settlements. But he is old and he doesn't have his son anymore. So the girl has picked up the slack in terms of the work that a son would do in this situation. And the girl tells the narrator that Hob has gone off on a journey to advise the people in the river valley. The narrator is afraid of Hob and he wants to leave, but he isn't strong enough yet. His leg is still in bad shape. The girl says that she can hide the narrator from Hob and take some food here and there, you know, to feed the narrator. She can hide the narrator in the old pigsty or pig keep. The pig is gone and the narrator can live there. So I guess now we know what Hob's hawk will be. Uh, (laughs) but, But besides, you know, she says if Hob notices food going missing, she'll just tell Hob that a rat stole it. And this is confusing to the narrator because he doesn't understand, as we pointed out, he doesn't understand how deception works. He wonders how someone could speak something that is not the case to another person. The girl doesn't understand how he doesn't understand deception. So she just helps the narrator to the pigsty and he's super weak and he can't make it there without her aid. Then the girl tells the narrator to hide out here and she can return to with food when it's dark. She leaves the narrator, and he eats some more dried meat and goes to sleep. And he goes to sleep with food in his mouth, and it's still like there and dissolving and gross when he wakes up. He takes a moment to reorient himself to his surroundings. He smells the flowers and realizes the girl is on her way to him. She tells him to keep quiet. Hob is back, but she does give him more food and then tells him that Hob is going away for a while to go to a a meeting of these elders or whatever they are. And this news makes the narrator really happy. But the narrator is still curious as to what happened to Hob's son. I guess this is the real detective part of the story. A lot of questions (laughs) about what's going on with Hob's son. The girl won't say, but she explains that the goal of the meeting with the elders is to create a trade route between all the settlements. The narrator doesn't understand how a path could be made without people traveling on it regularly. And she says something the narrator doesn't understand in, in response, which is that they can use a song to describe the landmarks in the world that guide people along this path before the, the route is trampled down by feet, before it becomes you know a clearer path. And she knows part of the song, and it goes like this. Oh,
0: I hope you're actually going to sing this. I'm
1: not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, how now may I find a mate, he journey boy is say. Up valley edge in dark of tree, by dirt worm hill and all. And lie with she while is I not yet put to dirt all gray. Up valley edge in dark of tree, by dirt worm hill and river's knee. And there is lie they, he and she, and neath of grass and all. After she repeats this bit of verse, Hob comes out from his hut, yelling to the girl because he wants to know what all the ruckus is about. Like, who is she talking to? And the girl says, it's just me. And then tells the narrator that tomorrow she'll have time to tell the story of Hob's son, because Hob will be off at first light to go to the council of elders. So she leaves and, and... kisses the narrator's cheek. And this, of course, excites him. So we're do- also doing kind of like a, a thousand and one night sort of situation here.
0: <laughs> right. This is good storytelling technique for, you know, the characters in the story, I suppose, but also for for Alan Moore here. I and mean, this this song is really interesting, even though you uh, you refuse to actually sing it, Brandon. It's still quite interesting. I mean, for, for one thing, it has some of the, the same odd syntactical and grammatical features as the narrator's language, but it rhymes and it has a, a meter. So, as you you said at the top of the the episode, Brandon, this is some evidence for some evidence anyway that's going to become important when we're trying to figure out what is up with this crazy language. Uh, so we will talk about that in the discussion. We will also talk a little bit about the idea of long form poetry in pre literate societies as well. This is a you know it's a cool feature of the of the of this story here. I think.
1: Yeah, it really is, and uh, I really do like the idea that. Uh, before, you know, there were obvious ways of getting around. Uh, people did have to use landmarks to navigate, and so this becomes part of the culture. One suspects of these early settlers is the the songs they sing that tell them uh, how to get around in the world before all the paths get made. Well, the girl leaves the narrator at this point, and the narrator sniffs the air a little bit and thinks maybe he smells a pig, but. Really, he's just concerned about how someone could say something that is not true, and also how a saying might make a path. Also, he has to go to the bathroom, which is you know big feature of the story, <laughs> and the narrator is <laughs> worried if he's too close to the hut and goes to the bathroom, Hob will smell him. So he goes off a little ways. Also, it's a good idea to not like go to the bathroom super close to where you live or eat unless you have plumbing. The real point, though, is that because the narrator can walk a little bit, his leg is stronger. And now he knows that. The moon is out, the clouds are dissipating, and he sees again a bridge. And I, I realized I didn't mention this bridge earlier. It's something he he saw when he was investigating the river valley. And he understands that people have cut down trees to make a bridge go across the river. And he thinks that's his way out. He can cross the river and escape this situation by the bridge. He is of his people. He is of their kin. And they do not join settlements. But he thinks about how he will eat while his leg is healing. And boy, that girl smells super nice. And he still hasn't heard the story of Hob's son. So <laughs> he better stay. Uh, and so he does. He goes back to the pig's diet to sleep. First thing in the morning, the girl comes out and and joins him. Hob has gone, and she's glad he didn't escape last night. The narrator asks her about how she got her clothing, which, hey, she's wearing clothes. And she's being super flirty now with the narrator, and he is getting aroused. She actually has some clothes for him if he wants to wear them. The clothes used to belong to Hob's son, but Hob's son doesn't need them anymore. The narrator puts on the clothes, and the two go for a walk. She really is trying to explain to the narrator that the elders will need to confer with spirits in order to create the path. And the narrator asks how the spirits will get their price paid in exchange for this knowledge. And she explains that the spirits want Hob's son as a sacrifice. The settled people want to sacrifice Hob's son as well. And this is because they recognize that because uh, you know, again, in my interpretation, Hobb is old and has a young son, that it, it's the hardest thing. It's the most difficult thing that these people can put up. So it will yield the best results. The girl then asks the narrator if his people ever practice human sacrifice. And the narrator explains that, no, they, they don't do that. He doesn't understand or think that this is a good practice at all. But that's besides the point. If if Hop doesn't agree to the sacrifice, he will be cast out from the settled people. The narrator and the girl continue to walk, and they hold hands. And the narrator is really beginning to fall in love with this girl, and he super wants to see her naked. So he really <laughs> he really just has a crush on her. Um, but you know they're together, and then they do some surveillance around the bridge, and the girl points out a woman who has largely rotted to the bone. This woman is someone who, who the people in the settlement have caged alive as a sacrifice of like goodwill in building the bridge and making the bridge strong or making it part of the path. Uh, they've sacrificed her to the spirits. And, and this woman is part of the path song. Her, her part goes like this. Lie she there in neath of wood, and bone is she, and bone is she. Lie she there, eyes woman good, and by of river go we. The girl and the narrator continue their walk and run into some settlement people. They pass by them without issue, and and now it's time to turn around and head back to the hut. The narrator goes back into his pigsty, and the girl does work, you know, to prepare for Hobbs' return. She compliments the narrator on how good the reps look on him. And when he's alone, the narrator takes off the cast on his leg and everything is actually looking a lot better. And he starts thinking about the girl and, you know, he's got butterflies in his stomach, uh, which he can't describe very well. Uh, And, you know, he's just dealing with all that stuff for the first time, maybe. Hob has come back and the narrator can see Hob gathering wood for the fire. And the narrator realizes that Hob is of fire. So like we're thinking about elements, like what made people. And in the narrator's sense of what people are, they're kind of separated, I suppose, by uh, being of different elements. So Hob's of the fire and his people are of the earth. Then the narrator thinks about the path some more and realizes that many people will be sacrificed to build it it will be a path of bones. And these thoughts take the narrator to sleep. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure this human sacrifice
0: stuff is just some, uh, some background world building, not really part of the plot at all. So uh, no need to worry <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, but we will be talking about what Moore is doing here with uh, the role of human sacrifice during this, uh, this period of, of, of serious business, seriously significant
1: social transformation. So so the narrator has fallen to sleep and he, he dreams, but maybe he's also awake. He hears his mother coming to him, but he this time he can't see her. He does, though, see Hob walking with a boy. Hob has taken the black paint off of his face, and the boy is young and, and hasn't gone through puberty yet. Then he hears his mother ask about her foot again, and then the narrator goes back to sleep. When he wakes up, he smells food and flowers. The girl has brought him some food, which you know is what those things indicate. <laughs> uh, and and he eats while the girl is nearby. And then he goes to pee. The girl watches him and smiles at his you know will. Uh, he's embarrassed but he's also really okay with it. And then they go for a walk and she follows a path through the marsh that keeps her from getting sucked into the ground. And the narrator follows this path. They walk for a while and are tired and take a break. As they're sitting, the narrator asks how old Hob is. Well, he's old. The narrator says that people shouldn't really be living that long, but really what's going on is that he wants the girl to only like him and not like Hob. Then the narrator tells her that he saw Hob and his son last night. The girl now tries to convince the narrator that the son is alive in the dream world where the narrator's mother and the and shag shagful live. But this is a difficult concept for the narrator to understand. So maybe we're supposed to understand that the son is dead or something like that. Once again, the Girl tells the story of why Hob's son needs to be the human sacrifice, and what will happen to Hob if he fails to agree to this. The girl continues to complicate matters by explaining what Hob argued to the elders, which is that there might be a way that Hob can sacrifice the boy in the dream world so that he remains alive in this world. Because if the spirit lives on after death, how do you really sacrifice a person? I mean, if he kills the boy in this world, and yet the boy lives in the dream world, has he really made a sacrifice at all? Yeah, this business, but
0: the the sacrifice here. I mean, this is uh, this is pretty complex, and and maybe we should think about this from the perspective of Hob and and his son, or or maybe just you know the perspective of the settled people, or I don't know the perspective of someone who knows what's going on, which I guess is anyone <laughs> other than the narrator, I suppose. But the the consequence for the settled peoples, if Hob doesn't make this sacrifice, right? What's at stake for them is that the roads won't be safe, but the consequences for hob and his son if they don't make the sacrifice if hob does not kill his son then they're both going to be run out of the settlement and hob clearly does not want to kill his son and he is trying to con his community here because he has to do something because of these high stakes and the the rest of the community is not buying it they're not buying this argument that he could you know sacrifice uh, his son in the spirit world but not actually here in the physical world You know, but uh, maybe there is some other way that he could trick them. You know, if only they could get someone else to pretend to be Hobbes' son for a while and let some neighbors see him from afar in Hobbes' clothing or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll see if anything like that actually takes place in the story or, or has already. I mean, there's no way of knowing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should have he should have run at the, the first
0: sign of, uh, of this level of trouble, right? If you ever go someplace and uh, someone's like, hey, just wear these clothes by right? this person who we don't know where that person's gone. Uh, someone's been trying to kill him. Just go ahead and put these clothes on. You should just say, no, thanks. I'll be naked. That's fine. And then run. <laughs> right.
1: Well, of course, the nar- the narrator has no idea what's going on, as, as we've pointed out, and he, you know, not just in the story, which I think, Glenn, you've done a really good job of highlighting what's actually happening here, but in what the girl is talking about with the spirit business, and he's dumbfounded, and then the girl runs off and makes the narrator chase her to the field where she gets the flowers to make her perfume paste, and she's running off and singing some of the path song and then she stops and hides and eventually the narrator makes it to the flower field as i said the girl's hiding and then she jumps out at him and it's you know it's like the simba nala scene from lion king it's all it's all very romantic and we all know where this is going uh, the girl can see that the narrator is aroused and then the narrator gets some action here which might actually just be the point of the story but he's also trying to touch the girl as well he wants to feel her but she's very resistant and says that no one can touch her. Only she can touch the narrator. And if he's not okay with that, then she can stop what she's doing. And of course, the narrator wants her to keep going. So he takes it easy on her. So I'm, I'm just going to point out the girl is like fully clothed here. But once they're finished with their business, the girl and the narrator head back to the hut. Hop hasn't come back yet. And, and while the girl goes to get some food... The narrator thinks a lot about how the girl could close her legs in such a way that he couldn't touch her. And it's a puzzle. Then Hobb comes back and the narrator has to hide again in his big keep. And he keeps on thinking about the situation. He's like fixated on it. And then he thinks, well, maybe only Hob is allowed to touch the girl. And if that's the case, then he needs to get rid of Hob. And anyway, he was thinking about how to get the girl away from Hob so that they could run away to, and be together. So, I mean, like, what he's got to do, like, his core goal now that he's fed is to get the girl by herself by any means possible, like, to get her away from Hob. When the girl returns with food, he tells her that they've got to get away together. And she seems to be all in on this plan. First though, they've got to eat and she has to prepare some food to take so that they don't starve after they run away. And the narrator is so glad that she's thinking ahead like this. You know, It's like his mom or something. And and she tells him that she'll go to prepare all the stuff they need for the journey. And then when she comes back, they can hit the road and get away from Hob. In the night, he hears a strange song and sounds that he thinks are like Sex sounds. But this is what he hears Make a fire and make it hot. And bone is he, and bone is he. Path is long, yet we is not. And by a valley go we. It's strange to be sure, but the narrator just eventually goes to sleep. He wakes up and smells flowers again, and he's very excited about his future with this girl. She comes into the pigsty and tells him to come out. And as soon as he does, he's ambushed. By Hob. Hob tackles the narrator to the ground. The narrator gets tied to a stake, and he thinks that Hob has found out somehow about the plans between himself and the girl, and now he's in real trouble. He cries. He pleads, saying that he'll leave them alone. But he sees that Hob has made a fire and made it hot. He's put down on a stump, the narrator, and his neck is bleeding. Hob is readying his axe. Hob goes to get a hot stick from the fire to, to bring it back. And while he's doing this, the narrator looks to the girl for help. The girl is now taking off her wraps, her clothing. Hob returns to the place where the narrator is and sets fire to the burn pile. The narrator is starting to burn alive. The girl continues to undress, and now she takes off her bottom. And when she does that, she changes into a man. The narrator sees that she has a will. As the narrator is burning, he sees the path from the river to the ocean. Hobbes speaks in an incomprehensible language. He marks the ground with special marks, and the narrator burns alive. That's the end of the story.
0: Yeah. And Moore did a great job of foreshadowing this ending, but then I think he also did a great job of making this final scene horrifying, even though I'd been anticipating it for about 15 pages. And and that is not an easy thing to to pull off. And there is a lot to talk about with this story, right? There's the the language, there's Moore's depiction of prehistoric Britain, and then there are some weird fiction elements to this story. Uh, we didn't necessarily call attention to all of them here in the the recap. So we do have a lot of work to do in the discussion, which is you know going to be our next episode. Uh, there's so much here. We're going to do a separate episode just for that.
1: Yes, I can't wait to do that. Uh, but that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn
0: McDormand. As always, you can find us and all our other creative projects and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to support the network and get access to all our bonus episodes, including the one we just did about uh, Robert Block's story, and also help us do more, Alan more, uh, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia.
1: If you're not already supporting us on Patreon, please visit us there and consider uh, supporting us. It goes a long way to, to making this podcast. If you haven't joined us and you still want to check out what we're up to and what we're doing, uh, if you want to talk to us about these stories, you can head over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of our uh, attempts to decode and <laughs> interpret Hobbs Hog. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this story. Yes, I think there are probably a lot of points of contention, though, you know, I
0: agreed with all but one decision that you made all but one interpretation you made Brandon but I think that there there were other ways to go with some of them so uh, that will be a fun conversation to have Uh, but we have more fun conversations to have about this story so next time we're going to be back with a discussion episode and uh, until then we greet you and say farewell